Hi there, Christy Totten from Name Drop San Diego here. Name Drop is a podcast from the San Diego Union Tribune that focuses on the fascinating people that make up this wonderful place we call home. My guest today is Casey Brown. I know of Casey because she's a contributor at the UT where she's written about lessons we can all learn from Native culture. One of her essays that really stands out to me is about how communal values helped Indigenous people survive the pandemic. Casey has an incredible life story, and this interview just scratches the surface, but let's jump right in. Casey Brown, thank you so much for joining me on Name Drop. I'm so excited to have you here finally. Thanks, Christy. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited myself. Okay, well, I wanted to begin by asking you to introduce yourself. I know you as a Community Voices Project contributor. Uh, You're a fantastic writer, sharing a lot of stories about your experiences, you know, in and around San Diego. But when you introduce yourself, how do you do it? Um, Hi, I'm Casey Brown. Um, I am a direct descendant of the Barona Band of the Kumeyaay Nation. Um, We are local Indigenous um, population. Uh, We have several reservations um, in San Diego. Um, And I work doing um, Native Americans graves protection and repatriations. Um, So I work in a lot of institutions and I get, I like, I'm so blessed because I get to send home um, remains of my own ancestors out of these institutions to be rightfully buried and um, left to rest. Um, Outside of that, I'm mom of two really great young men. I have a 23 year old son who has a lovely fiance and they are just doing big things in the world, um, getting into the Department of Corrections. And then I have a 17 year old who's a, a senior in high school right now. And he's pretty awesome and just has the biggest heart you ever met. Um, outside of that, you know, I just, I live here on the reservation on my mom's property right now. Um, I take care of my two husky dogs. I sometimes get to go out in the field and do real archaeology work, um, do some digging and stuff. And that's super exciting as well. But you know, my biggest, my biggest passion is to take care of these ancestors who can't take care of themselves. And also to be able to, um, you know, bring these stories, these, um, these things that are going to be lost, these stories, these traditions, um, back to our youth. I'm really, I'm really, um, looking at ways to bridge the gap between the elders and the youth right now. Yeah, I love it. I mean, you're doing such important and powerful work. How did you get into it to begin with? Oh my gosh, it's a great story. Um, and, and I'll just say in a nutshell, my creator delivered this opportunity to my doorstep. Literally, there was um, some undergrounding of utilities going on um, where I lived in Lakeside at the time. And um, something came up that wasn't expected to be there, some artifacts. And uh, um, some people were outside my front door, some scientists looking people and some natives. And me being nosy, I just went out and was like, so what's the what, you know, what's really happening here? And um, got to talking um, to uh, who turned out to be my best friend and mentor, his name's Justin Linton, about, you know, the work that they were doing. And I just was like, okay, so how do I get your job? And he laughed and said, well, you just got to be in the know when we're hiring. I'm like, well, I know you now. So am I in the know? And um, <laughs> I was, I was working at a little boutique close to home and left to go to work, come home for my lunch break. And um, Justin asked me if I had a resume, gave him my resume, think anything of it. About two weeks later, I was called and started, um, you know, the, the very first baby steps, which was construction monitoring, going on to construction job sites and just where they're digging and moving earth and just being on the lookout for what might be there. Um, and from there, that evolved into working with the formerly San Diego Museum of Man, now it's the San Diego Museum of Us, um, 
working with their um, repatriations. And so that sparked my passion and just, you know, to be able to set things right in a way, you know, we can't go back and change what's happened. We can't, you know, the idea of decolonization is not all the colonizers go away. Obviously we know that's not realistic, but um, to just basically help some institutions like get right with their decolonization policies and, and move forward in a positive direction where they're working hand in hand with the indigenous communities whose items they're um, stewarding at the moment. Yeah, it seems like institutions are becoming more mindful of this, no doubt because there are people like you pushing them to become more mindful of this. But I mean, what have been big highlights, you know, of your career so far or uh, just big wins? Um, huge wins with the, San, with the San Diego Museum of Us. I mean, when I came on board with them, um, first as a contractor, then as a full-time employee, about five years ago, um, they just have since then, in my experience, I've had this really great administration that was really interested in doing the right thing. Um, a lot of institutions I'm told nationwide will, um, you know, do the lip service of we're doing the right thing and not really follow through. Um, so huge wins is just the over 300 ancestors I've repatriated. Um, uh, myself with other people, don't misunderstand me. There's a huge group of us who work, who have worked on these projects, but um, to be able to know that um, I can go to my cemetery here on my reservation and see repatriation burials that I had a hand in. I had a hand in making something right for this ancestor who, you know, I, a lot of people don't think about it. And especially those of us in the science community that um, yes, this is human remains. This is also somebody's grandmother, somebody's auntie, somebody's daughter, somebody's son. And, um, you know, I know if I were not a native woman, I still wouldn't want somebody digging up my grandmother and studying her bones. So um, that's been the biggest win for me is just the mass numbers of people that the people who do what I do have been able to really um, help, help make it right. And then just um, at times seeing people's minds change, you know, being able to present something in a way that somebody is like, oh, wow, I didn't think about it like that, I guess, you know, that, that's been a huge win. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, what do you have to say about uh, in Indigenous people here locally, uh, the, tr the treatment, I guess, you know, of tribes here locally? I mean, are they getting the respect they deserve? Absolutely not. Um, absolutely not. Uh, nowhere in the United States are Indigenous people receiving anywhere near the respect they deserve, we deserve. Um, I can tell you here in San Diego, it, it was an interesting um, dynamic. When I was growing up, when I was in high school and doing the beauty pageants and cheerleading and all the things to try to um, not be a number, not be a statistic of somebody who ends up stuck on the reservation. Um, it was very, you know, I'm in Lakeside, we're a small rural community. Um, it was very, there were times where if friends, parents found out I was from the reservation, I was not welcome anymore. And then um, when I had my oldest son, I moved to Montana, uh, I went to college there, came home. And in that time frame, our casinos had started paying off large dividends. And there was almost like a, a flip-flop, a reverse, where now if somebody knows you're from the reservation, they wanna be your friend. And it's just as toxic. It's just as toxic. There's a lot of usury, um, unfortunately, a lot of usury. And 
you know, so for me, it's sort of almost put a worse taste in my mouth. I would almost rather know you're a racist because you're ignoring me than think that, oh, this person is trying to help out our family, our tribe, our cause, and then come to find out, you know, it's really more of what they have to gain. But it's, it's still, it's still a racism, you know, it's still looking at making an assumption based on, you know, who we are and where we come from. Um, So as far as respect goes, you know, a lot of these institutions are taking steps to do the right thing. Um, The biggest thing in, for me personally, that shows a huge step is to make a land acknowledgement, you know, um, and basically all that says is that we as a business, we as a company, as an institution, we recognize that we live, work, and do business on the ancestral homelands. And, you know, we're, the Kumeyaay, we were a migratory tribe. You know, we followed the seasons from the mountains to the desert, to the ocean, and, and the fishing and the hunting. And so anywhere you are in San Diego, you are on indigenous homeland. And uh, just, just that recognition, it's something that I have seen, just that little bit of recognition really changed somebody's mind about you know, where they are and what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that's a question I have for you is like, what could, you know, just everyday people do to, to, to help, you know, I've heard um, other indigenous friends complain like, oh, Native Americans are not a thing that happened in the past. You know, it's not a thing that you learn about in a history book. Uh, You're here today. And so like, like, what are, I don't know, I guess like do's and don'ts or just like common misconceptions that you encounter. Oh, well, common misconception. I can tell you, I had, um, uh, a woman who was an extended family member on my former husband's side, just as recently as like three, four, five years ago, um, say to me, I, oh, well, I didn't know there was still reservations. Like, did you grow up in teepees or like, and, you know, I pointed out to her where she lives in Northern California, she goes to a native casino. And I'm like, you know, that is reservation that it, yes, we're still here. We are still a thing. Um, another thing, like, average joe could do is uh, be mindful of um of stealing somebody's culture um you know i i i think like all of the genetic testing that people can do to find out you know their background it's really great um it can be informative people find lost family members it's amazing um just because match told you you have a little bit of native doesn't make you a native american and just you know being mindful of there was a time, especially like I said, for me even, but even more so for like my, my mom's generation where you would say you were anything but native because that was preferable. My, um, my great, great grandmother would tell people she was a quarter Scottish in order to be able to get work in Old Town San Diego um, because otherwise she wouldn't be able to get work to support all of her children. So, um, you know, just being mindful of those little stereotypes You know, when you hear someone talking about like changing mascots names, a lot of people just don't understand it. They can't relate to it. Um, Just button up about it, man. I mean, really like you can't know unless you've lived it. And, you know, just the sensitivity, I guess, the sensitivity would be huge. Um, And, and, you know, I think a lot of people look at natives and and don't think they need to be sensitive. And, um, you know, I'm not, a person on display I you know I, I people are quite fascinated with our culture and, and that is um touching touching I would love to be able to educate everybody on you know 
our culture, but we are also very private about it. And a lot of our culture was stolen in times of, you know, um, when people would be bringing things to these museums and institutions, often our, our artisans weren't paid a fair trade for, um, for their items. Uh, a lot of stories were taken, um, songs were recorded that should have never been recorded. You know, they're very private things. And, um, you know, I, a, a big one for me, if you go to a gathering or a powwow, because we do that, we wanna bring the public in, we want the public to see, you know, a little bit of our culture, but um, don't take pictures, you know? I mean, you're coming to a pretty special thing and we're all like, especially, you know, nowadays with the cameras on our phones, we're really quick to like photograph things that, I mean, I've seen people photographing other people's children in a park and I'm thinking, wow, I would be really put mm -hmm. off like that. <laughs> right, right. And, but yeah, just, you know, I think all in all, as adults anymore, we get so caught up in our own what's going on with me that we forget to be sensitive to anybody around us. And I, I don't think it's limited to um, people of color or, um, you know, and, and we do snap judge people based on visualization. And so, yeah, just, um, you know, not asking those questions, not, I get a lot of, oh, so how much free money do you get a month? Um, you know, and it's just a really funny story because personally, I don't get any dividends from our tribal businesses. My mom's the cutoff there, but even so, like, I would never ask somebody, how much does your job pay you, Christy? It's just, <laughs> right. So yeah, just those little sensitivities and, and, and yeah. Sure. Yeah, no. Well said. Uh, good tips there. Well, speaking of name changes, that's been like so hot in the news nationwide, locally. Are there any places locally that you're advocate, advocating for the name to change? So many, so many. I mean, I would love to see the Padres change their name. I mean, you have to understand that Padre is like a, a friar um, in, in, in Catholicism. And um, those were our colonizers, man. They, uh, they came here and they enslaved our people and all that goes along with it and on our own homeland. And um, every mission in California, you know, we have the mission system, obviously. Everybody does their report in fourth grade. Um, what they don't tell you is every mission in California is about a five-day walking distance from the next because the Spanish conquistadors had come to realize very early on that was how long they could have our people carry supplies with very limited um, resources, very limited food, very limited water before they started dropping dead and being unable to build the next mission. Um, and But as far as places, yes, there, there are many, many, many places. Um, Carlsbad. Carlsbad's a big one for me. Um, the, the gentleman who Carlsbad is named after was, um, yeah, not a great guy, man, really. Um, and he decimated graves in order to study seashells, which to me, like, I think to anybody would be like, you are going to destroy a gravesite to be able to study seashells? Really? I mean, it sounds so unreasonable, so unheard of, but, you know, that's exactly what happened. I would love to see Carlsbad change its name um a lot of a lot of things around san diego you know uh, working at the museum for so long i was working in Balboa park and the statues you know and uh we would do uh an event every year at the museum for the kumiai people and we really pushed to have those statues covered on that day because it is such a slap in the face it is you know um and it's really unfortunate that even a lot of our own youth really don't understand that. They don't realize because we grew up in San Diego and it's Carlsbad and it's the Padres. And, you know, um, 
And with the name changes, I kind of went through a moment where I'm like, you know, who really cares? Like, I can remember being a kid times where it was like, oh, the Atlanta Braves are winning. That's right. You know, and it was a little bit of a positive um, connotation. However, as an adult looking at it, it really is, you know, it's not nice. It's not nice. And what's it going to hurt to change your ball team's name? Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Uh, and thank you for sharing that. I didn't know that about Carlsbad. I mean, as you know, I'm still kind of new here, but I want to read, read more about that. Yeah. Um, I'll get you some resource material. Cool. Thank you. Well, it's like, we have so much to talk about. You have such an incredible life story. And I wanted yeah. to go back to your childhood and talk about the time um, you actually appeared on a milk carton. Would you tell yes. me more about that? I certainly will. Yeah, I actually have um, a milk carton with my baby picture on it. Um, uh, my my biological father, um, he's a white guy. Um, having my mom met, fell in love. You know the whole story. Um, he was involved in some things that were not, well, they were against the law um, with a group of people. And um, a time came where um, he was very frightened for his safety, my safety, uh, he and my mom had busted up. And um, uh, so dad came to pick me up. I was two years old, this is in 1982. He came come to pick me up for visitation and never brought me home. And so I was missing and um, I was missing for four and a half years. And in the eighties, most people couldn't get much help with parent abductions, but more specifically, you know, my mom, being from the reservation, not having really um, much the, along the lines of resources. Um, she actually ended up having to go to Los Angeles County to get anybody to do anything to help her find me. Um, and so, yeah, uh, what ended up happening was um, we, uh, we were at the very beginning of our gaming business here and um, some folks had come to help manage that. And um, my mom was very friendly with some of them and they actually put up a lot of money. They did a bingo game to try to help my mom find me. Like all of the proceeds went to her private investigator. And, but yeah, she had to really grind it out, like get out on the streets. I mean, she's told me stories of how many times somebody thought they'd found me and she'd go in the house and it was, you know, a beautiful little brown baby girl, just not her brown baby girl. Um, so interestingly enough, there was, um, my dad had taken me to Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, just outside of Cincinnati. And uh, there was a news program, sort of like a Good Morning America, but kind of more local, I guess. And uh, I, I remember I was six years old. Dad's dropping me off at a babysitter in the morning. And this program was always on. And they showed a picture of my dad and me and an age progression and said I was a missing child. And um, um, it, it was a big deal because my dad didn't go to work that day. And he um, left me with some, some close friends who were like family to him and um, to come back here and turn himself in on child stealing charges. So at the time in, in Ohio, the way that their child custody laws were, were set up was because he had had physical custody of me for more than a year in that state, he had legal custody. And meantime, my mom ends up flying out there because this babysitter had called in the tip, we know where she's at, you know, they'd found me. And um, her and my godmother flew out and, you know, they said they thought it was just gonna be another dead end. And um, 
they they go to the courthouse and um, I was brought to the courthouse and they saw me and knew it was me and just were ready to come home. And um, there was this judge who was like, yeah, well, guess what? These custody laws are these custody laws. And um, as my mom tells it, if I remember totally correctly, um, I believe it was the court reporter who pulled the judge aside and uh, he went into chambers and he came out and asked my mother, was she, was I an enrolled um, tribal member on our reservation? And she pointed out that, you know, we don't enroll our children until they're of age and make that choice for themselves. And he asked if she was, and she said that she was, he asked if she could prove it. And um, I guess incidentally, our tribal office had just gotten its first fax machine. Wow. And uh, she was given a very short time frame to get something faxed and it came through in the, in the nick of time, you know, and um, basically under the Indian Child Welfare Act, that judge remanded me to my mom's custody to be brought back to the reservation. Um, so yeah, I was a child of Equa. I was a missing, I was a missing child. Uh, my grandmother kept this milk carton for years and years. I still have it now. Um, it was a big to do on the news. I remember the news met us at Lindbergh Field. Um, it was the ungodly hours of the night when we flew in and um, a few days after they came around, but you know, yeah, it was, it was, you know, my family never thought they would see me again. And, and, and they did. And that's so rare. It's so rare for missing children, even more rare for missing indigenous people. You know, there is a huge, huge missing and murdered indigenous women movement going on right now. And, um, you know, I was a missing, I wasn't a woman yet, but I was a missing young lady. Um, at one point, I was nearly a murdered indigenous woman. Um, and in this, with, along with this movement, you know, they're pointing out the cases of sexual abuse, sexual assault, you know, um, as a native woman, I am like two and a half times more likely to be a victim of violence. Um, and in the reporting, it doesn't get reported. You know, um, I think it was 2016, there was something like 5,700 incidents of um, violence against indigenous women. And only 116 of those were reported. Out of those 116 reports, only 5% were covered with any kind of media you know, it's huge. There's a young man from my reservation bear who's been missing for a few years. And um, it's insane to me that this isn't on the news every day. And, you know, my heart goes out to the family of Maya Millette. And, um, you know, I, I think it's so great that they had the resources to push for keeping her name in the papers. Um, you know, the young lady who uh, went missing from another state just not that long ago, I'm sorry, I can't remember the, her particulars, but it's also like, this is so huge in Indian country. Why is it not talked about? Why are we not seeing this on regular media? And the unfortunate truth of it is it's not even really taken seriously by law enforcement. Hmm. And, and yeah, it's a hard one. It's a real hard one. Well, I guess, first of all, uh, yeah, no, that's terrible. I'm sorry. And I would like to help you get coverage for that case and any other. I mean, your question is completely valid and uh, there's there's no excuse really, you know, right? Why why some are publicized um, more than others. Uh, but yeah, let's, you know, talk afterward and Absolutely. and try to get the ball rolling on that. I would really actually like to help you with that. Um, I think it's totally crazy that 
85% of Native women have experienced violence in their lifetime. 85%, which is like 10 times the national average. Mm. For any, for any ethnic group, for any state, um, 10 times, we're disappearing at 10 times the average. What do you view as the solutions or, or what can be done to improve it? Um, absolutely coverage. Absolutely coverage. You know, um, we're pretty progressive here in California. Um, but, you know, anybody who's been to more than one reservation knows that we were intentionally by the government put in places where we're kind of off the map. We're up windy roads. We're in, you know, um, inhospitable climates. This is true nationwide. And unfortunately, if your tribe does not have some kind of um, business with resources or something, so to speak, to offer the outside community, they just, it's nobody cares. Nobody cares. Um, I spent three years in Montana, like I said, when my son was younger and, um, you know, visited their Indian health clinics because that was my health care, um, went to the reservations there. And for me, it was very eye-opening because, um, well, for one thing, as a native woman in Montana, as a native woman, I um, lived in Utah for a short time. Um, you are looked at differently. I, in my adult life, had never really experienced that kind of outward racism um, until being in these other states and really seeing what our people go through there. You know, um, my cousin, she took out some young men for uh, to go to Standing Rock um, to protest the pipeline and they had hotel reservations and walked through the door and they put up the vacancy sign, you know, just that extreme. And, and, and that's something that needs to be brought to light. But unfortunately what happens is a lot of times, you know, these, these young women, young men even are going missing from reservations and just nobody cares to do anything about it. Um, I find in, in, in my own opinion, um, law enforcement doesn't do much, especially for reservation on reservation crime. Um, there are reservations in the U.S. who have their own police force, and I'm really hoping that that's starting a trend towards um, better treatment. But, you know, I, I can tell you that growing up here, where I'm at, seeing what I've seen in my lifetime, um, it's sort of like, well, if you guys want to take each other out, so be it. And, um, you know, we're on the other hand, if it were somebody from off the reservation, assaulted by somebody on the reservation, it becomes a huge ordeal. Sure. I mean, it, it makes headlines. It makes headlines. Well, you've just mentioned all these terrible statistics, which are problems, you know, which hopefully will get more attention and can eventually be solved. But I know that you've personally dealt with some of this, right? Like you just talked about uh, going missing for four years as a child. Um, that's that's huge. Like, how do you feel like experiencing that um, shaped your life? Oh gosh. Um... You know, I guess if you had asked me this like 10 or 15 years ago, I probably would have said it didn't have an effect on me, um, but it has, it has. Um, I think that for myself, speaking for myself personally, you know, I, I ended up becoming involved in a very abusive marriage um, that was a decade long. Um, I left that. I thought I had found some safety back at home. And then I had another horrible experience um, being sexually assaulted. Um, I think that um, growing up the way I did and, and having violence around and knowing about my own violent history, um, 
it made me a little, um, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, desensitized to where um, I could be talking to a friend outside of the indigenous community and drop these statistics. And to me, I'm like, it doesn't surprise me. And they're like, wait, what, what do you mean? Um, there is some desensitization. And then there is also like, you know, I sort of have, have a guard up a lot now, you know, as far as, oh, why are you so interested in being my friend? Why are you so interested in giving me this opportunity? Um, so it, it's a lot, it's a lot as an adult, we all have these th kind of things where, you know, we're of two minds about things, but um, I have become much more aware in the last three, four years um, of the ways, you know, people victimize you. Um, for me, the biggest thing is, I kind of had this idea as a young adult that some of these things didn't happen anymore. Hmm. I really believe that men quit beating their wives in the seventies, you know, like that just doesn't happen anymore. If it does, it's a total one-off. Um, I didn't grow up seeing that. So, um, it made it very easy for me to be, um, you know, manipulated by this person, you know, nobody ever starts off by punching you in the face, you know, it kind of begins with, um, you know, using words and, and, and other kinds of manipulations. And I do think, um, having grown up, I grew up in a place where everybody's my family. I didn't really have to be worried about what their motives were toward me. And, um, there was a little false sense of security and, and thinking I could believe people. And so, yeah, um, I just look at it now, like I had to go through these things because there's a purpose for it. Um, me telling my story, me writing my story in the paper, it is going to give somebody else, maybe just the courage to survive it. Maybe the courage to speak out for themselves. Um, I just am a firm believer that like, we are here to do good, you know, whatever your religious or spiritual beliefs are like, we're not a random human beings are not just something random. We're not a random organism. We're here to do good. The more good we do, you know, I'm so blessed to have grown up in a community where we help each other out. You know, um, if somebody's on hard times and don't have gas in their tank, got to get their kid to school, someone's going to get that kid to school or put gas in their tank. You know, um, it, it really is a beautiful existence. Um, but yeah, it is, it is difficult to get out into off the reservation world and realize like your neighbor's not going to lend you a cup of sugar. They're going to think you're a weirdo for asking. Um, I just think we'd be so much better off if we could all just kind of get back to that like sense of community. Like this is my community, mm -hmm. you know, wherever you happen to be. I'm sorry, yeah. I guess I kind of off on a tangent. No, no, you didn't. I mean, it's, it's nice to hear you expound on these things because I've read a lot of your essays having to deal with this, having to deal with domestic violence, having to deal with how the reservation fared okay during the pandemic because you have a culture of taking care of each other, you know? So it's nice to hear. Um, more about it. I, we're kind of running up against the clock here, but I mean, fast. I know it goes so fast. It's only 35 minutes, but um, you know, you have this incredible life story. You're working on so many incredible things. I mean, like, what do you want the future to hold for you? Oh man, for me, just to be of service to my people somehow, you know, um, I feel like I've been able to do a lot working with repatriations. Um, it means the world to me, it really does, because these are people who can't speak for themselves, they can't do for themselves. But uh, moving forward, like I said, I really would like to get um, working more into um, 
bridging the gap between the youth and the elders. There is so much of our culture that's been lost due to um, aculturization, due to, you know, boarding schools, whatever, or just, um, you know, being able to survive that um, I would love to be able to bring some of these, you know, bridge the gap, um, put these elders together with these youngsters in a way that um, is meaningful, in a way that I'd love to see. I would love to see our schools stop having kids make missions in fourth grade. To me, it is so like, if you're gonna tell that story, tell the whole story. You know, my mom just reminded me how my grandma made me put um, like, dead bloody Indians on my mission in like, I don't know, 1989 or 90. It's amazing. And, uh, Good for her. Yeah. My grandma was like, nope, we're going to be accurate. And, um, you know, I was always that kid that wanted the best grade and like, was very worried about what everybody thought. And, um, it was one of the few times I can remember really getting into it and being like, well, yeah, that is what happened. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, well, I remember doing the, the fourth grade mission project as well. And uh, yeah, we definitely didn't get the whole story. There was nothing controversial about it. I didn't understand until much later what the controversy was. But I mean, do you see the culture changing in a way um, that is hopeful to you? Like American culture? or Yeah, as far as just recognizing um, these things and trying to write you them. Know, I really don't, to be honest. And I, and I hate to sound that way. Um, I think that we are so distracted by so many things in American culture, I, you know, I can't speak for other countries, but we're so distracted by so many other things. The things that are going to get our attention are the things that are getting coverage and the people who are hyping up those buzzwords. And, you know, unfortunately there is like a project going on right now at the Salton Sea. They're going to start mining the Salton Sea for lithium. And we think, oh, cool, lithium, it's a good clean energy, but it's really not, number one. Number two, they are decimating graves. Um, they are it's, it's the same as strip mining. Like I realized there's not many resources in the Salton Sea, but that was a place where, you know, I can account for 500 graves that came out of that place and nobody's talking about it. Nobody's doing anything about it. Um, on the East coast, um, they're doing some, um, energy projects off, off the coast. But when you think about where the land began and ended 200, 300, 500 years ago, they are just decimating um, um, places where these natives on the East Coast were actually living their lives because you know the, the sea rises and falls. Um, and it, it's, it's an ongoing thing. And unfortunately, you know, there's so much money in these energy sources that it just gets swept right under the rug. I think everybody who went out to Standing Rock made a huge, I'm sorry, my mom's telling me she's leaving. Um, <laughs> That's okay. Cowboy, come here, come here, cowboy. Um, and, and so just getting educated, just really understanding, like, if it sounds like this huge, great thing, like, you know, like the pipelines, there's probably more to it. Um, you know, we just need to get more coverage, more coverage on, um, not only that this is something that matters to us, but why it matters to us. We need water. Every human needs water. You know, um, we need these resources and when they're gone, they're gone you know, they're just gone. And what are we going to do? So um, taking an interest in a way that it's not just, okay, I support these native people. I support this indigenous community. No, I support human life. We need water to survive. We need these resources to survive and recognizing that they're not fine. They're not infinite. They are absolutely finite.
Thank you for listening to Name Drop San Diego. I'm your host, Christy Totten. And-